What spirited singing we just enjoyed a few moments ago. What a tremendous opportunity to approach God in prayer as Brother Eddie led us in that. The opportunity, in fact, to enjoy the community of believers here at Pippin. It is a great day indeed, the first day of the week, in which in the first century era they assembled to offer worship unto God as they partook of the Lord's Supper, gave as they'd been prospered, and we too today have that same privilege. And what a great blessing indeed that it is. As Brother Ted mentioned earlier, we're thankful for each and every person today. We're glad that we each are able to come, and we hope that our worship will indeed be edifying to ourselves, but more importantly, magnifying to the cause and name of God. The kingdom of God is truly a magnificent thing, and how blessed we are to be a part of it. It is true that as we look forward to that 2 o'clock service this afternoon, I know that's a bit of a time difference of what we're used to, but please keep that in mind and come and be with us. Let's, in fact, have a joyous time together as we lift our voices in a powerful way, praising and exalting the name of God and His kingdom. Communicating with God. That lesson, in fact, is the sequel, the second part, if you please, to a lesson that we started last Lord's Day morning. In fact, on that occasion, some thoughts on this opening slide will hopefully bring to our memory what we saw on that occasion. But we noticed how important it was to appreciate the value of communication. In a family, between co-workers, if there's not sufficient communication, then we know that often there's great inefficiency. There's quite often the tendency not to accomplish the thing that should be accomplished. But on the other hand, when there is heartfelt, efficient, and powerful communication... It allows for the transfer of information. It allows for ease of transition between works and activities. It allows for a community centered on the objective to be accomplished before them. In the day in which we live, there are organizations, in fact, that go around the country delivering seminars as to how to improve communication in a company, how to improve communication at a university, how to improve communication in yea, any group that acts or works together. The Bible is a masterpiece on communication, isn't it? For you and I know that there is a God in heaven and it is, should be our desire to communicate with Him in the way that He has developed and told us. And last Lord's Day morning we studied prayer in which you and I can lift up our thoughts, our petitions, our heartfelt thanks unto God and do that resting assured that according to the Bible He's promised to hear those that are His faithful children. In fact, we devoted the lesson to developing that point and did so with the thought that there would be a part two today. This part today centers on how does God communicate with us. Throughout the centuries, there have been many suppositions that He speaks by way of dreams, visions, trances, voices, characteristics of calls in various and sundry ways, but thankfully, we have before us a consideration that helps us understand the fullness and the greatness of how and what is the means whereby He communicates with us. In Isaiah 155, or rather chapter 55, verses 8 and 9, the inspired writer pointed out to us, God speaking says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my thoughts higher than your thoughts, and my ways higher than yours. We immediately then know that unless God reveals to us the things that He wishes us to know, it's not possible for us to determine it by guesswork, to determine it by some other spiritual activity. 
how then has God revealed to us what He wants us to know, what we must know in order to be saved, and what we must know in order to live as we should in His sight. It is the case then that as we've studied prayer last week and how we communicate our wishes and petitions to Him, what about that means whereby He communicates to us? You hold in your lap, or perhaps you hold beside you on the pew, a very, very special book. So special it is that I thought that at least a few moments of the lesson today should be a reflection of what that book claims about itself. It is true, isn't it, that quite often second-hand claims are quite often faulty. Second-hand claims are quite often riddled with mistakes and hearsay. So let's go to the book itself. What does that book claim about itself? It is incredibly special, isn't it? In 2 Samuel 23, 2, the inspired writer of old David said it like this, Powerfully, beautifully, and yet ever so majestically, The Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and His word was in my tongue. David knew full well that those things he was writing and those things that he was putting forth were in fact the Word of God. Quite opposed to the claims of some in our day, the writers of the Bible knew they were writing Scripture. They weren't writing simply their impressions and later that became Scripture. The Spirit of the Lord spake by me and His Word was in my tongue. As David made that statement, doesn't it remind us then that this book claims to set forth the Word of God. It is not the Word of men claiming to be the Word of God. It is not the speculation of men asserting to be the Word of God. It literally is the Word of God. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, arguably the most famous of the verses touching this point, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Isn't it still fascinating to hear Paul make reference to all Scripture? Notice that makes a distinction. There are writings that are Scripture, like the ones you and I hold, and then there's everything else. Newspapers, magazines, documentaries, various articles of various subjects... There is something different about Scripture. All Scripture is given, how, Paul? By inspiration of God. Theonoustos, the Greek text. Theos has reference to God. Noustos, breathe. It's literally God-breathed. That word, then, is not anything other than the actual, proclaimed, asserted, presented matters of God. All Scripture given by inspiration of God. And then what is profitable for several things? First, profitable for doctrine. In order to learn what is and what should be known and what is and should be done. This is the textbook. Profitable for doctrine, for reproof. We know that reproof involves correction. In what way then should you and I appreciate the opportunity to correct others or others' correction of us? When it's based on the Word of God, that elevates it to a plane far higher than what I think or what you think. When the Word of God is being utilized and it asserts correction, how vital, how needful that correction then is. For it's not just human opinion, it's God's assertion that it needs to be corrected. For doctrine, for reproof, for correction, 
that specific description of correction in which we appreciate the need to repent, to change, to turn about our way of thinking relative to something. And then for instruction in righteousness. How do you and I know how to live? You and I live in an age now roughly for the last century. It has been dominated by relativism. This thought that everybody is right to do what he wants because no one has any right to judge him oppositely. Relativism is running rampant in our land. Again, it has done so now for close to ten decades. And yet, as you and I appreciate, that has leached its way into religion so often. I've got my way. Leave me alone. I'm headed to the same place you are. You don't have any right to tell me what I have thought or what I'm doing is incorrect, improper, or ungodly. This matter of no right. But you'll notice when it comes to instruction in righteousness, we need a thus saith the Lord. And we need a double dose of those characteristics centered on the nature of what God's book has asserted. All Scripture given by inspiration of God. Did you note verse 17 of that same passage? That the man of God, how does it end? May be thoroughly equipped, complete unto every good work. You and I then have one textbook that leads us to spiritual maturity. One textbook that leads to spiritual completeness and adequacy. No wonder Paul asserted in 2 Corinthians 3 verse 5, Our sufficiency is of God. If you and I try to be sufficient based on what I think, what I know, what I may have done, we're sure to be short. We're sure to be inadequate. This book perhaps leads us one final time to another text, though many might have been selected. In the opening chapter of 2 Peter, the last two verses of that chapter, we have again a very impressive reflection from one of the apostles himself. Peter on that occasion said, you may notice the strangeness in some ways of the language, but how penetrating it is. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not of men, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Knowing this first, no prophecies of private interpretation. That, in other words, says that every passage harmonizes with every other. You and I must never interpret a passage in a way that contradicts some other one because it says no prophecy of the Scriptures is of any private interpretation. That prophecy did not come by the will of men, but rather holy men of God spake it as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. One of the grand works of the Holy Spirit, isn't it? He is a production of this book. Arguably, he's one of the first grand publishers. We have many publishing companies today. The Holy Spirit published this one. It has never been equaled, nor shall it ever be. It, of course, is the Word of God put in print for your benefit and mine. And that Word of God, inasmuch as we notice 2 Peter 1.21 again, it is that which the Holy Spirit prompted, motivated, superintended those men to write. Roughly 40 men over a span of about 1,600 years wrote what you're holding far above the opportunities of culture, far above the opportunities of language. It's needful for all cultures and all languages till the end of time. What a grand book it is. This is the means whereby God communicates then with you and me. 
Let's build that thought with a greater foundation you'll see on this slide. For if it's true that God communicates with you and with me through this book, is it any wonder then we're encouraged and admonished to study it? And by that I mean not just reading it, not just a cursory reading, because may I say to you, there are many that read the Bible, but they still live in error. There are many that read the sacred text, and perhaps they in earnestness think that all is well. But there are other passages they ignore, other passages they misinterpret, other passages they see not the thrust of, and in so doing, we know that they have wandered astray into denominationalism or otherwise. In 2 Timothy 2.15, the inspired writer said, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. May I invite you to unpack a thought or two from that passage. That verb study comes from an original word that means to give diligence. In other words, give diligence to show thyself approved unto God. Now you and I might immediately notice when we interpret or translate that verb that way, then it doesn't have any reference directly to study. But read onward. So I'm supposed to give diligence in ways that will allow me to stand approved before God. You are admonished, in fact, to give great earnestness and diligence and dedication to standing approved before God. So Paul, how do we do this? Handling aright the word of truth. The last part of that verse, to handle aright. You'll notice that phrase, to handle aright, means it is possible to handle it improperly. It's possible to, in fact, do great damage to the interpretation of it by resting the Scriptures. Notice I use the word rest, spelled W-R-E-S-T. And that's the same one Peter used in 2 Peter 3.16. Peter observed in that first century era that there were some who rested the Scriptures to their own destruction. They misinterpreted it, they mishandled it, they read into it what they wanted it to say, and thus... They walk straightly aside from the truth of God. There still are legions, it seems, in that number. Paul, in fact, reminded us to give diligence to handle aright the sacred text. The Bible is indeed so special, so honorable, so sweet in so many ways that it deserves a handling like that. But it might be in regard to those things that a few other verses should challenge us. And again, so many might have been selected. i chosen some excerpts from the longest chapter in the Bible. That way we wouldn't have to flip pages quite so often. But might I invite you to revisit the 119th Psalm in the Old Testament. Admittedly, this was written in an age and in a time before Jesus came and lived on the earth, before He gave His life, before He shed His blood on the cross. But that leads me to ask this. If the things we're about to read were correctly descriptive of God's law of Moses, for example. And yet, if the New Testament is far better and far greater, then ought not our feelings even be stronger relative to the gospel than these are relative to the law of Moses? Let's see if that isn't true. In the 119th Psalm, verse number 9, as well as verse number 11, we're told especially in verse 11, let's focus on that one for just a moment. Thy word have I hid in mine heart, that I might not sin against thee. If you and I then are ever to know 
what holy, godly living is, how to live, how to think, where to go, where not to go, how to speak, and how to conduct ourselves. This is the book that informs us of that. All of the self-help books in the world don't compare in power and majesty to this one. All of the characteristics of self-help sites on the internet don't compare to the power of the Word of God. For this is the one that will be opened at judgment and not them. Notice further in verses 15 and 16. I will meditate in thy precepts and have respect unto thy ways. I will delight myself also in thy statutes. I will not forget thy word. You'll notice mention is made of meditation. To think carefully about, to ponder on, to devote time and contemplation to. The psalmist said, I will meditate in thy word. I will meditate in thy precepts and have respect unto thy ways. What about meditation? I know that there are religions in the world that place a high emphasis on meditation, like the Buddhists over in the Far East, and to some extent the Confucians also of the Far East. So much so that meditation is lifted to a high degree that there's even parts of each day that are supposed to be dedicated to it. You'll notice in this passage, the inspired writer said, I will meditate in thy precepts. Now in that place, he doesn't tell us how often, but may I at least ask, do you and I meditate on the Word of God very often? Do we devote some time to reflecting deeply with profound study on the characteristics of its claims? Do we use that to edify and strengthen our faith in the Lord? Reading the Bible shouldn't be like reading a newspaper. We skim it, set it aside, and think we've learned enough. God's Word has depths that, I, may I say, will never plumb if we live to be a thousand. But rather, in the Bible, we find these marvelous truths that can be such great anchors to our soul. Let's look even further. Not only that meditation mentioned in verses 15 and 16, but what about some of the next thoughts such as... Verse number 140. Thy word is very pure, therefore thy servant loveth it. We find embedded in that then the observation, God's word is pure. There are no mistakes, no discrepancies, no uncertainties or problems related to it. And in that purity, David said he loved it. Do you and I have such great respect for it that it could be said we love the word of God? We treasure it. We are excited about the thought of it. When it comes time for Bible study and worship, does our excitement overflow to the point we can't wait to get here? It is something to think about, isn't it? Doesn't that say that if we choose not to be here, you apparently don't have much esteem for the Word of God, do you? If I absent myself purposefully from the worship services or Bible study periods of the church, doesn't that directly imply that I have not that much respect for it? For of all other places, the church is where that word is lifted highly, isn't it? In fact, along that line, what did the psalmist, the same psalmist say in Psalm chapter 1? The opening saga of that book. There have been some who've noted that that opening psalm in many ways is a prelude to the entire book of Psalms. Maybe there's much truth in that. In Psalm 1 it says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly 
nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. That's the first six verses, the only six verses of Psalm chapter 1. Did you notice in verse 2, I will meditate day and night. Now may I submit to you, that doesn't mean that one should literally, 24 hours a day, be contemplative and meditational on regard to the Word of God, but it does mean that we should on frequent occasions have a mindset that opens with power and with great desire to turn to the Word of God for direction, for guidance, for sustenance, for power. Every one of us are going to face problems in life. There are going to be times where in fact maybe even our faith is shaken because something happens and we throw up our hands and say, God, why did you let that happen? May I say that we need even in times like that to have a foundation on which we can turn, a source to which we can turn that will allow us to ultimately appreciate that there is a God in heaven and that He does love me. And despite the chicaneries of the devil and the problems that may come my way, if I live appropriately and rightly, I do know that there is a home for me, a home for the faithful. If our knowledge and trustworthiness of God's Word is sufficiently weak, then in those times of trouble, where else do we turn? Our family may love us greatly, but they have not the words of eternity. Our friends may be very good intentioned, but they have not the words of eternity. May I say that we need then to recognize faithfulness in regard to God's Word. But not only that, let's look at some more verses in the 119th Psalm. Verse number 97. Oh, how love I thy law. It is my meditation all the day. The love for the Word of God. In verses 103, 104, and 105, we find, How sweet are thy words to my taste. Yea, sweeter than honey to my mouth. What does that say about the sweetness of the Word of God? Do you and I get excited about the thought of it? May I say to you that I suppose like many, I get excited on occasion about a good meal. And I think we all do. We enjoy to settle and recognize the great bounty that God has provided for us and how good that food tastes. Sometimes it's a question for myself as I suppose it could be for you. Do I get as excited about God's Word as I do about a good meal like Thanksgiving or some other special occasion? Do you? Do I? Job said, I have esteemed thy word greater than my necessary food, Job 23, 12. Maybe in light of that, let's look at verse 105, one of the most well-known of that longest chapter in the Bible. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. The direction provided by the Bible. Last Sunday, there was an article in our bulletin that was entitled, Give Me the Bible. It made reference to one of the songs that we sing in our book. And we sing it often because it's so meaningful. It's a grand tune, isn't it? It's a wonderful hymn. Give me the Bible, star of gladless gleaming. 
as you look at the four verses of that song, when we sing that, does our heart reflect on how special the Bible is, how wonderful we are, thankful we can read it and study it and use it? Perhaps one more verse in that longest chapter. Verse 167. That was the lesson text that was read earlier in our hearing today. The, grand, the grandeur of God's Word amplified with that closing statement, I love it exceedingly. Not only love, but housed under the adverb exceedingly. Perhaps this is the time for a question. Do you and I, do you and I look upon this book with that degree of concern and that degree of excitement and that degree of love and that degree of joy? One of the things Tom Holland shared with us back during that meeting in the month of May was one of those lessons in which he spoke with such tenderness about the meaningful character of the book of God. Throughout the course of that sermon, he showed us in so many perspective ways about the sweetness of this book. Do you and I look upon it that way? Or do we look on it like a textbook? Some other book that isn't looked upon that specially. Maybe as you look further on that slide, you'll notice then what a sadness it is that there can be ignorance with respect to this book. And you and I know it well. In Hosea 4 verse number 6, the ancient writer of old said, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. That was God speaking through Hosea. God said, My people. Not just the world because they don't have any interest in it or at least haven't expressed it. He said, My people are destroyed. That still is a major problem even in the church, isn't it? When there's insufficient knowledge of the Word of God, when there's too much ignorance of it, and isn't that the means whereby a number of activities in the Nashville and Cookville areas have begun to develop? Though the building may say Church of Christ, what takes place inside is shocking. What takes place inside has problems whereby it isn't in accordance with the sacred text. It's because... My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. You and I should appreciate then with great vitality those occasions of Bible study. Our elders have seen fit to in fact announce these times two times a week on Sunday morning, Wednesday evening. We even announce them on the radio and invite the community to come be with us. What does it say if we choose not to be here? Well, apparently they don't consider them that important. Apparently they don't look upon them that specially. And yet you and I know that this is the only book that offers salvation for our families, our nation, the direction for the church. Apart from this, listen to Proverbs 14, 34, Righteousness exalted the nation, but sin has approached any people. And a people cannot identify sin unless they do it by the Word of God. In fact, that comes next, one of the next items on our slide. Isn't it true that one of the grand benefits to the Bible is it tells me what's right and it tells me what's wrong? As I mentioned earlier, we live in an age of relativism where some say there is no right and wrong. My friend, I feel sorry for you to stand before the God that you claim didn't give you any right and wrong and you try to say to Him that there wasn't any such thing. As long as God exists and He is a God of truth, Deuteronomy 32, 4, there is a wrong and a right. And there is activities that are incorrect and improper just as surely as there are those that are to be upheld and good. 
We're told especially, aren't we, in 1 Peter 3, verses 12 and 13, that we should eschew evil and cleave to what's good. Thankfully, we have a book that tells us what falls on the evil side and what falls on the good side. So we know what to hate, what to loathe, what to treat as abominable, and what to cleave to and what to pursue. You'll notice so often in the Bible, descriptions like that are provided. I would ask you to look at a few of these passages you'll find listed. The admonitions to Timothy are very revealing, aren't they? Timothy was told in 2 Timothy 4, 1 and 2, I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead that is appearing in His kingdom. Preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers, having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and be turned into fables. But watch thou in all things, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry. For the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all of them also that love is appearing. Paul said to Timothy, Timothy, you preach the Bible. You preach it when they like it, and you preach it when they don't. You preach it when it's convenient, and you preach it when it's not. You preach it when there's a large audience that's excited to hear it, and when there's a few that still are excited. Timothy, you preach the Word. Earlier in 1 Timothy 4, verse 16, he said that by doing so, you not only will save yourself, but you'll save them that hear you. Oh, how great the Word of God is. Our pulpits need to flame from this land with God's Word. It does nobody any good to preach the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, Aesop's Fables, or anything else. But when the Word of God is preached with love, and preachers are commanded to preach it that way, to speak the truth in love, Ephesians 4.15, and so any man that preaches it not out of love may well do harm. But when it's preached in love and when it's heard that way, it can transform lives, it can transform churches, it can transform communities, and it can have such tremendous benefit to one and all. That book you hold then is a pretty special book, isn't it? May we say as we come near the close of our lesson that that same book is of course the one and only source to our faith. So often we are in a position to hear about how special and how needful faith is. And none of us would argue that. But where does faith come from? Does it come from a feeling in my heart? Does it come from what I think? I'm sure that you, like my family, has had a number of individuals say that what I feel in my heart is the source of my faith. And you can't change that with any scriptures you quote or even allow me to read. But yet Paul forever said in Romans 10, 17, Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. He did not say my faith should be based on a feeling, on an emotion, or on any other characteristic like that. But when we find God having stated something, and we by proper interpretation have made that conclusion, we have learned what's involved in God's declaration. And that can then be the source of this faith identified in Hebrews chapter 11. 
Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Hebrews 11.1 1. And without faith it's impossible to please Him for he that cometh to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. Hebrews 11 verse 6. It is for those reasons that perhaps in finality we can notice that the Bible answers the greatest questions of life. Haven't you and I often found ourselves in position to appreciate just how small human knowledge is and yet how grand this book's declarations are? For instance, what happens at the time of death? What's it like after death? If left to ourselves, if left to the world of medicine, the world of biology, the world of sociology, there isn't any way we can know. But this book says it in a very few verses. The rich man and Lazarus, both of them died. But they both were conscious after death. They both understood what was taking place about them. Both of them were aware of their surroundings. One man knew he was in torments. One knew he was in Abraham's bosom. Which do you want to be? Which do I want to be? Don't we want to be the one like Lazarus in this life? But also, more importantly, like him in the life after this one? Sure we do. We understand well that those greatest questions of life find their answers in this book. May I say to you that one of the things it reveals in such grandeur is, of course, the coming of one who could do for us what we never could do for ourselves. It details verses like this one. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life, do you and I believe that? God sent His Son. That plan of salvation that the Son delivered is expressed in words like these. You must believe that I am He, John 8, 24. You must repent of your sins, as we read in Acts 2, 38. You must confess me before the hearing of others, before man and God, commanded in 1 John four fifteen. And you must be baptized for the remission of your sins, Acts 2, 38. That too is included in this book. Have you attended to that? Praise be unto God if you have. But may I also ask, have you been faithful to that confession you made? There was a time you confessed before the hearing of others, I believe with all my heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And if that's a true statement, one should give his or her life in full service to that word that the Son delivered. Are you doing that day by day? Are you living faithfully to Him? If you are, then again, praise be unto God, and may you live that way till death. But if anything is amiss in your life today, maybe you haven't ever become a Christian, maybe you have but aren't faithful, why not come back to your first love in that second case? This opportunity, Jeff has made mention of a song of encouragement, this song of exhortation. And it is a song that we do encourage each other. If you need to respond publicly... Please see it not as a circumstance of coming before and admitting all the faults and failures of life. It's a time to admit that, yes, I've made mistakes, but far more important, to beseech the forgiveness of the one who can forgive and to let others know that you're making a change in life. You don't want to live that way anymore, but you want their prayer and their encouragement and their strength to help you live as you should. That should be something all of us would find very comforting. 
in a moment, if you'd come forward, if that be the case in your life, we'd be delighted to assist you in your public response and also in making things right between you and your God in any way we can help. But for now, if you find yourself in that situation, don't delay. Don't procrastinate. Please don't put it off. There's no moment like the present for today is a day of salvation. Won't you come while together we stand and sing?